This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today our guest has a truly unique practice. Depending on your perspective, he's either a professional Santa Claus or a professional Scrooge. Kenneth Feinberg is best known as the administrator of the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund. And, Ken, thanks for joining us here Glad today. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. We all remember exactly where we were and what we were doing when we first heard the horrible news of 9-11. Um, you had just finished teaching a class at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. That's correct. I was teaching a mass torts class at University of Pennsylvania, an early AM class. And I left the classroom at the end of the class, and there right in the lobby of the law school was a TV blaring about a plane that had hit the World Trade Center. I immediately figured it was a, uh, an errant navigation that caused the, uh, the So there's crash. a whole bunch of students crowded around this television, right. and there's a lot of commotion. Right. And what, what you're, what, what, so you're thinking, oh, it's just an accident. And That's right. So you move on. I move on. I headed to 30th Street Station to get the train back to Washington. And when I got to 30th Street Station, lo and behold, a second plane hit the World Trade Center. And now everybody knew it was not an accident, but an act of terror. The train got as far as Wilmington, Delaware, and a third plane hit the Pentagon. And that's when all Amtrak service ended. Uh, I went outside with a couple of in, uh, lawyer friends who were uh, also on the train, and we uh, hailed a taxi, and the taxi drove us the one and a half hours uh, back to Washington. Congress acted quickly. It was only 11 days, I believe, uh, after uh, the attacks that they first passed a statute. But the main focus of that statute was not compensation to the victims. The main focus of that statute was to protect the airlines from bankruptcy, wasn't it? Well, that was the goal. The goal was uh, to uh, encourage would-be litigants 9-11 victims and their families, rather than sue the airlines for absence of security or Massport or the World Trade Center or uh, Boeing aircraft, uh, why not uh, offer a much more efficient, quicker, more certain alternative public compensation in return for uh, a decision not to litigate? And that was the motivation uh, that drove Congress uh, very quickly to s establish uh, an unprecedented yeah, I was public they, compensation. They, ha they hadn't done that, for example, for the 95 uh, bombing of the Oklahoma City federal building. They, no, they, they could have, but they didn't. They didn't. They didn't do it for the 1993 first attack on the World Trade Center committed by the very same people. Or the USS Cole. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. So, uh, so we'll come back to that. I uh, would like to come back to that. But um, to, to follow this thread, the victim compensation aspect of this 9-11 legislation was really kind of an afterthought, wasn't it? it well, uh, the whole process only took a couple of days, but it was a secondary consideration. Uh, the trial lawyers and some others went to Congress and said, if you're going to encourage people, individuals, not to litigate, 
you ought to provide them a very generous alternative to litigation that will encourage that voluntary exercise not to litigate. And so the compensation program was added to the airline, et cetera, bailout yeah. in an effort to encourage individual would-be plaintiffs to bypass the conventional litigation system and come into this public compensation alternative. Well, looking back on it now, and in light of the whole experience that you had to go through in administering this thing, what if you could have gone back and and advised Congress on, on what else it might have done, what would you have said? What, what, would you, what tweaks would you have made to the statute? Well, my, my tweaks would be very material. I would have said, Congress, it is absolutely proper for you to do what is necessary to both protect the airlines and compensate victims and families. It is appropriate to do so. It is sound public policy. But having to do it all over again in retrospect, do not ask one person, myself, one administrator, to calculate different individual amounts for every single claimant. In other words, instead of saying that everybody will get a different amount of compensation, Mm -hmm. why not have some sort of uniform program that doesn't pit A against B against C against D, but rather one size fits all. If you lost a loved one, you get X. If you were physically injured, you get Y and do it much more efficiently and without promoting the type of divisiveness among the population you're trying to help to raise all sorts of challenges. But that's sort of a continuing theme throughout all of your subsequent work, as, or almost all of your subsequent work as well, which is that you're, you're doing this against kind of the backdrop of the tort law. And the tort law, one of the cardinal principles is, you know, know, compensating people for their expected loss. And so, you know, you've got people who are earning different different amounts at the time of the tragedy, and their families have different expectations uh, going going forward. And so um, this is a constant tension, isn't it, in in, in the kind of work you do? I mean, how do you how do you answer those people? The way you answer it is by saying you're absolutely right, uh, Professor Lee. If the alternative compensation program is tied to the hip of the tort system, Mm 9-11, the BP oil spill, Mm -hmm. if the compensation is driven as an alternative to the tort system we know and and, uh, have appreciated for over 200 years, of course. Then you're using tort concepts designed to encourage people to opt for an alternative. Most of the programs that I've been involved in have not been tied to the tort system. If you look at the great um, bulk of the programs that I've been involved in over the last uh, decades, Mm -hmm. One Fund Boston, the Hokey Spirit Memorial Fund, the Aurora, Colorado movie shootings, uh, the Newtown, Connecticut, Sandy Hook Elementary School, those programs are not uh, cousins of the tort system. They are private privately funded uh, alternatives to nothing. You can take that money 
and litigate if you want. It's not an alternative. Those programs, as difficult as they are, are much easier to manage and administer than programs that you're focused on, like like 9-11, that require tort considerations. Uh, but is, isn't there a key there, though, uh, where, when you have you know, private money coming in, and, you know, then you're cut loose of the tort system? It's a gift. The, it's a gift. It's a gift. But if you are using public money and you're trying to wean people away, you know, you're precluding them from filing litigation afterwards, don't you have to throw some tort principles in there in order to, to hold them in? A, absolutely. In fact, the statute creating the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund by statute joined at the hip the tort system and the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund. Now, I must say there's one aspect of what you've just said that B is focus. The 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund is the only fund Uh, tied to the tort system using public money. I know of no example before or since where the program tied to the tort system as an alternative Mm -hmm. was funded entirely by the taxpayer, not the airlines, not the World Trade Center, not Massport or the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, a very unique program that I doubt very, very much will ever be replicated. So despite uh, the shortcomings of the statute, uh, you campaigned for the job. You uh, got in touch with Senator Chuck Hagel. Uh, then-Senator Chuck Hagel, uh, who was a friend of yours. Uh, You'd worked together before. Um, And uh, you had some doubts about whether you, as a former Kennedy aide and uh, identified as a liberal Democrat, uh, could be appointed by a Bush administration. But that actually kind of turned out to be in your favor, didn't it? That's correct. Uh, Attorney General Ashcroft, former Senator Ashcroft, who had the appointing authority under the Bush administration and the statute. Uh, I met with him a couple of times. Wonderful. A wonderful series of interviews. A wonderful supporter of the program, actually. And uh, he made it very clear that this was a bipartisan, uh, politically uh, creative statute, one that had uh, unanimous consent in the Senate and the House, and one that required a individual administrator, regardless of political affiliation, with experience in compensating mass disaster victims. And uh, also, I think, there was an understanding that the program could be so controversial, so emotional, so disruptive, that uh, the president of the United States, President Bush, similarly very supportive, should distance himself from the politics of compensating only certain victims of, of disaster, while every day bad things happen to good people and they're not subject to the jurisdiction of the 9-11 fund. Well, I was going to say that's another thing, is that they wanted a lightning rod. And what better to have a lightning rod who's not associated with their party? Uh, That's right. Senator Kennedy, on the other hand, said to me, uh, it's wonderful that you're going to do this. Uh, Be careful what you wish for. (laughs) Uh, In other words, uh, Senator Kennedy, a good friend, admonishing me, be careful. This could be a very difficult, rocky road. And it turned out to be just that. Yeah. At the beginning, at least. You had to set ground rules. 
going forward. And uh, you had some very, very tough choices to make in exercising your discretion in this position. Talk about those ground rules a little bit. Most of the ground rules were generally um, defined by the statute. The statute said, for example, that uh, a victim of 9-11, somebody who died on the planes, the Pentagon, or the World Trade Mm -hmm. Center, Mm -hmm. uh, that a victim, um, uh, the family could file a claim and be compensated. The statute did not say one word about who gets the money or who can file the claim. It said that the the 9-11 victims shall be compensated. But the statute gave absolutely no indication of whether a divorced spouse should file, one sibling at odds with other siblings, same-sex partners, fiancés, uh, fiancés uh, who files? And not only who files, who gets the money? And we had to work that out. Then there was the whole question of physical injury. The statute said the only individuals who could be compensated by the 9-11 fund were those who were physically injured in the immediate vicinity and in the immediate aftermath of the attacks. So you had to decide what was in the immediate vicinity. What is immediate vicinity? Yeah. If if an if a 83-year-old woman is um, uh, hanging a picture at her apartment building and her apartment on East 96th Street, yeah. sees the planes hit the buildings, the World Trade Center, falls off the ladder and breaks her leg. Is that in the immediate Well, I city? think, and I just want to say here that the, uh, this is from uh, your book, What is Life Worth?, which is a debrief, essentially, of your 9-11 experience. You talk about uh, one woman uh, rushing off, the, an elderly woman getting crushed as she was getting off the Staten Island Ferry. Uh, yeah, that's right. That, that was outside the line for you. That's outside. What is immediate aftermath? And what is immediate vicinity? And what we did, of course, by regulation, uh, pursuant to the statute, we developed a yellow uh, a book of promulgated regulations published in the Federal Register, pointing out how we would interpret the statute. And there were a great many challenges. You were very transparent. Very about transparent. It. And these these regulations could form the basis for a good exam in Tort One at Hastings, because it deals with proximate cause, with statutory interpretation. What if somebody goes home after the attacks, working in the World Trade Center, five days later, gets ill from inhaling the fumes mm-hmm. or the dust? Yeah. Or the guck at the World Trade Center. Is that in the immediate aftermath of the attacks? What constitutes immediacy as to location and chronology? These were tough issues. And, and if you decide that that's not immediate enough, was this person any less harmed? Well, that's they right. Were, they were still harmed. That's right. Um, you had town hall meetings across the country. And... Um, I think one of the things you say in the book is that it turned out to be less about the money than it did about catharsis, that what they really want, most of them, what they wanted was they wanted their stories to be heard. That's right. And especially they wanted to validate the memory 
of a lost loved one. Did that surprise you? Uh, yes. You thought it would be about the money. I thought it would be about the money. And it turned out that money was rarely the issue. Usually, both publicly and then in private hearings that I held with any family member, 900 hearings, uh, almost invariably, people took advantage of the opportunity to be heard to validate the goodness of a lost loved one. That was usually the case. But there um, were a few exceptions to that. Um, I, w- I would just like to, to go to one particular example that really struck me. Uh, it's an example, I think, of the money's not everything. Uh, but it's also a counterexample to the wanting to be heard. And uh, if I could just read from this, it says, uh, I met with mothers who had lost sons and begged them to complete the necessary application forms. Mrs. Jones, I'll help you, I said. Just sign the form and my staff will fill out the rest of the application. Don't compound the tragedy by missing the statutory deadline. Take the money. Don't let the terrorists win. Mrs. Jones stared at me blankly. In a flat, robotic tone, she responded, Go away, Mr. Feinberg. Thank you for coming but no amount of money can replace him. Leave the application on the kitchen table. I'll look at it later. And then you say, never heard from her. The application was never filed. Uh, My biggest disappointment, that case, my biggest disappointment, I learned that grief can paralyze people. Here was a woman in her 70s, maybe even 80, that lost her son at the World Trade Center, so overcome by grief, she could not fill out and sign an application that would probably have provided an award tax-free of over $2 million. She couldn't do it. I tried every way I could, including visiting her at her home. She's one of only two people in the entire fund, two that let the deadline go by, never filed, never filed a lawsuit, didn't, uh, didn't opt for either option, and let the time expire. I, I, it's clear from the book that you're proud of the work you did. Uh, but any regrets about anything you did uh, during the administration of the fund, any decisions that, not, in, not so much individual decisions on yes. claimants, but about the way you ran the process, about you know, things that you said. I regret the first six months of the program when I presented myself in a much too legalistic, formal, uh, business-like manner. I thought initially that this program would benefit from an objective, legal, uh, antiseptic approach so you'd get so at these town meetings, at these town hall meetings, you'd initially you'd present yourself in a very, very clinical way. That's correct. Big mistake. Why? I learned that what drives a program like this and what drives claimant interest is emotion, is not the legalisms and the intellectual analysis, but rather the the interrelationship of each claimant to me and my colleagues so that it's one-on-one where human beings show some humanity, show some sensitivity, show some compassion. I found after six months of a 33-month assignment 
that, uh, you know, lower your guard on, on this. Start being a little bit more interactive, but a that's little bit not more what, human. But that's not what we teach you in law school. Well, we teach you to be analytical. We teach you to keep your guard up, to spot all the issues ahead of time, to troubleshoot, to take care of all contingencies, or at least consider all contingencies ahead of time, and never show your cards. My law degree, as I say in the book, served me very, very well in the design of the 9-11 fund. Very well. Here's the statute, statutory interpretation. Let's promulgate guidelines consistent with the Chevron doctrine and administrative law. And let's be very legal. And let's make sure we design a program for compensation that will survive legal challenge. Once that's done, now my law degree is at best a wash. I'd be much better off in administering the program with a degree in divinity or a degree in psychiatry uh, in trying to uh, interrelate and react better with the individuals, you're, the very individuals you're trying to, to assist. That's a very important lesson I learned. You say about regrets. Yeah. It took me a while. I'll never make that mistake again. In fact, in all of the subsequent programs, um, we avoided a great, a great part of that angst by uh, reflecting initially at the outset how do we uh, express our camaraderie, our allegiance, our support. Uh, for the very people we're trying to help. Can we talk about, a little bit about uh, the programs that are either very recent or going on sure. as, 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 as we speak? Uh, you mentioned Newtown, for example. Where is that right now? That uh, money has been distributed in the last six it was about, months. What, was it about $60 million? Is it, that? Oh, no. no $60 million was the One Fund Boston. The One the Boston Fund Boston Marathon. Okay. okay. The Newtown, we distributed about $8 million. $8 million. And okay. that was to And the, that was all private donations? All private money, no release, no tort release. And that was distributed to the families of the first graders who died in the shooting and a couple of the teachers who were injured. And that money was distributed about six months ago. One Fun Boston was an amazing program. Amazing because thanks to the mayor of Boston, Tom Menino, and the governor, Deval Patrick, uh, One Fun Boston raised in 60 days $60 million, all private. And we ended up compensating the victims of the marathon bombing with private money, the same amount as they received, as others received in 9-11 with public money. We had that money available, and we, we compensated deaths and physical injuries and uh, that program all. That so both of those are closed now. Closed. And uh, what would you say the average award was in Newtown? In Newtown, the average award for a death was about $320,000. Okay. The average award for a death in the marathon bombings was a little over $2 million tax-free. And uh, 9-11, the average was just a little less than $2 million. $2 million for a death. And, a, and the median was around $1.7 million. That's right. Now, why? Hey, you make a, a, a big deal about that in the book. Very that you're big. very proud of the fact very. that the average, and we're getting into statistics here, but that the average, the mean, 
being right around a little less than two million, and the median being one point seven. You're very proud of it. Why are you proud of I'm that? I'm very proud of that because those two statistics tell you a great deal about the discretion that we exercised. Even though the statute required us, required us to, to provide different amounts to every individual in order to make sure that they are encouraged to opt out of the tort system, we also exercised our discretion to bring down the top wage earners, bring up the bottom wage earners, so that although the average is two million, the median, half got more, half got less, is 1.6 million. Uh, We wanted, and effectively did, narrow the gap. It's all public money. We narrowed the gap between what the high-end earner would get and what the low-end earner would get. And the statute, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals approved this, the statute gave me that delegated discretion to try and uh, determine uh, what's an appropriate amount for each client. Let's talk about how you got into this most unique profession. Uh, You knew Judge Jack Weinstein because you had both clerked for Chief Judge Stanley Fold. And uh, the Agent Orange massive tort litigation before Judge Weinstein was about to go to trial. And he called you. And what did he ask you? Ken, uh, I know you. Uh, you're the former chief of staff to Senator Kennedy. You're just what I need. I want you to come on in and try and mediate a settlement between the chemical industry that made Agent Orange and the Vietnam veterans class of victims claiming injury due to Agent Orange exposure. So what did you tell the Vietnam vets? Uh, at our first meeting around a table, I said to the Vietnam veterans, what amount of money do you want? to uh, resolve this litigation. They said, we want $1.2 billion. This was in the mid-80s. Mid-80s. And I asked the eight chemical companies, the eight chemical defendants, Mm -hmm. how much are you collectively willing to contribute? For all the victims. For all the victims. They said, uh, we'll pass the hat and raise $25,000. I said, well, we're making progress. (laughs) We're starting to make progress here. We've got $1.2 billion. And eight weeks later, of course, the case did settle for, with interest for about $250 million. Now, um, that, that got you on That a, was the beginning of that type of career. That yeah, I, that got you on an uncharted path. I mean, nobody else was doing that no, sort of thing. No. This, was a, this was a one-off. Right. Um, and now every time there's a tragedy and there's a pot of money to be distributed, your phone rings. Well, I hope it's not every time. Um, uh, it's pretty close. But I must say, I do receive calls from uh, the U.S. Navy shipyard in Washington with the 13 individuals who died. I get calls from the, ninth, the families of the, the 19 Prescott, Arizona firefighters who died in the forest fire. You hear about the shootings in Texas, uh, the fellow who was put on trial. So I do get a, a quite a few calls uh, where I'm asked uh, the fertilizer fire in Texas a few months ago. I'm asked... Uh, Mr. Feinberg, we have this money, and how do we distribute it? What should we do? What lessons have you learned? What advice can you provide us? So it's not always that they want to hire you to administer the fund, but they want advice. They want advice, and I'm more than happy to provide that advice in the public interest. 
Uh, you have only ever been paid for one of these compensation funds, for administering one of these compensation funds, and it was BP. It was the Gulf oil spill. Um, how did you get involved in that? How did you get hired to do that? The head of the firm at Arnold & Porter, a very distinguished Washington-based international law firm representing BP, Tom Milch, very savvy guy, uh, environmental lawyer working for mm-hmm. BP, called me and said, Ken, you know, I know what you did in 9-11. We may want to work with the Obama administration in setting up a similar program, a claims program, as an alternative to the tort system, funded by BP, not mm-hmm. by, the, by the taxpayer. Would you be interested? I said, of course I'd be interested. And over the next few months, Milch really organized, uh, orchestrated, uh, the gradual um, consideration of such a proposal, first with BP and with the administration. And ultimately, I met with uh, uh, individuals of BP, and I met with Tom Pirelli, the associate attorney general at the Justice Department, okay. uh, to get the Obama administration sign-off. And um, both agreed, and we went forward. And the Obama administration played a huge role. In, huge. I mean, they basically the president. Uh, some would say, twisted arms to get the twenty billion dollars uh, that you were administering. Um, when when the president thanked me for my service, he said, "You know, um, thanks to you." Um, this program worked, and it worked very well. And I said, Mr. President, if you hadn't uh, managed to convince uh, BP that it was in its interest to fund this, we wouldn't have ever started. He goes, well, thank you. So, I mean, it did work out. He played a critically important role in this, yes. But um, we've talked about your this line of work generally uh, making you into a professional lightning rod. You... uh, can't escape criticism for the, the, the kind of the kind of work that, but the BP episode was tougher in that regard, wasn't it? Because BP was your client. I mean, BP hired you, and you were administering the fund on their behalf. I was administering the fund on behalf of the BP and the administration. I, BP was not my client. BP paid the freight. Okay. BP paid the freight. You're right about that. But what about the public relations aspect of it? I mean, you were identified uh, oh, with BP, weren't I you? I was identified from day one as BP. And you knew, and you knew that was going to be the case. I knew. the the uh, the The reason there was such criticism is wasn't BP the BP oil spill wasn't some act of terrorism. We have Patriotism wraps around you, protects you, insulates you from criticism, 9-11. Um, uh, no, no. BP was an international oil company. Um, uh, knives were pointed at BP. Um, I give BP tremendous credit for setting up the fund, for looking for alternatives to the tort system. I think uh, BP uh, deserves a great deal of of credit and and, uh, support for what it did. Nevertheless, uh, BP would be the first to admit that I did not work for BP, and that as much as BP was interested in, in how I compensated victims of the oil spill, 
The Justice Department was equally interested in how I went about compensating victims of the oil spill, and ultimately it worked out, I think, uh, very, very well. Uh, in, in 16 months, uh, Professor Lee, before the first trial was even set to begin in New Orleans, we distributed $6.5 billion dollars secured over 220,000 releases to litigate from individuals and businesses in the Gulf and processed over 1 million claims. So I think that the Gulf Coast Claims Facility, once it was established by the administration and BP, Mm -hmm. uh, is an example of how you can develop and implement alternatives to the tort system that work, that are efficient, that are fair, and that provide some degree of certainty uh, to eligible claimants. Well, I, yeah, yeah, I'm not. I don't want to dwell on on this, but I do. I just and I would be remiss in not saying that this is from uh, Who Gets What, which is your second book in which covers 9-11, but it also covers many, although not all, of your other uh, work in administering uh, these funds, um, that, you, that you did come to the conclusion. I mean, you at some point entertained the idea of doing the BP gig uh, pro bono, as you did pro bono on all the others, but you came to the conclusion that you couldn't. Why not? I didn't think it was appropriate, first of all. Here we have a, an international oil company that is acknowledging uh, some responsibility to compensate victims and is acknowledging its obligation to fund the entire program, not the taxpayer, yeah. not the Obama administration. Yeah. This entire facility that's being created as an alternative to tort is going to be funded by the company that claim uh, that offers a willingness to do it i just felt that it would be um it would be inappropriate. It would be crazy for me not to be compensated along with everybody else for my work now it it, it i must say that compensation led to some criticism that i was being paid by one side and therefore i was beholden to that one side so even though they weren't your client technically that did create oh, a it created yeah. a tremendous atmosphere yeah. of concern what i did uh, after consulting with judge weinstein yeah, of course what i did was go to former attorney general michael mukasey mm-hmm. in the bush administration mm-hmm. not the obama administration and asked Judge Mukasey, former Chief Judge Mukasey, would you render an opinion? Here's my arrangement with BP. Here's how I do this. Will you render an opinion as to whether or not it's appropriate, whether or not the compensation is appropriate, whether or not the relationship is appropriate? He wrote this stunning opinion, signed it, saying what, what Ken Feinberg's doing is absolutely appropriate, it's creative, it's in the public interest, nobody can do it uh, as well as he can, and uh, it certainly has my blessing. Which is a lawyerly thing to do, to get, to get a letter like that, but how did it play in the, in the media? Oh, I think it played very well. You think well. it played well? I think it deflected a lot of the criticism, especially since I also went to Professor Stephen Gillers, mm-hmm. the nation's foremost expert yeah. in ethic, legal ethics at NYU. Yeah. He wrote an opinion saying stop jumping all over Mr. Feinberg he is not 
BP's lawyer. He is running a facility designed to render independent judgments on individual claims. And um, it's rather unique. You don't see it very often. But um, I find that it's perfectly appropriate. And uh, I use those two letters from Mukasey and Gillers. Anytime Congress or anytime anybody questioned what I was doing, I said, here, here, the, uh, the, the, these two uh, national figures, Mukasey and Gillers, are um, insulating me from the type of political um, uh, grenade you're throwing at me, and I'm going to go about doing my business, which I did. You know, throughout um, these books, you, you talk constantly of the uniqueness of these compensation uh, funds and uh, they're unique uh, not only in the sense of not being done throughout the industry, but uh, they're they're different from each other. Um, and so you're constantly saying, "Well, this is this isn't a precedent. This is a one-off. Don't think of this as as." as a, and yet, as I said before, you keep getting called, and you get called. It seems like you get called more and more for these things that. Uh, I think it's fair to say that alternative dispute resolution experts across the country, people who teach in law schools like mine, uh, are, they look to you. They look to you as, in some way, the, the, the father of, of, of that field. And they think that there's a lot of precedent in this. Maybe not precedent in the, in the strict legal sense of stare decisis, but a model, a model from which we should learn and replicate, and it does seem to be uh, replicated in many ways. So how do you, I, I feel like there's a disconnect there. On the one hand, there's, there's this constant protest from you, no, no, don't take this as a precedent, it's, it's a one-off. On the other hand, seems to be happening more and more. How do you react to that? Well, let's pass your comments because okay. they're very well taken. The 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund is obviously a precedent for nothing in the legal sense. I know of no program funded by the taxpayer to compensate victims of, a, of an attack. And we've already pointed out that USS Cole, previous, yeah, the, the there was 93, no. there were, there, yeah. There's been nothing. So I don't yeah. think, I think the 9-11 fund should better be studied in, in a class in American history rather than law. I don't think it's a precedent. The funding, the whole idea was unique. Mm -hmm. BP, I think that's rather unique. Maybe you can tell me when a company, a would-be tortfeasor alleged fronts $20 billion three or four weeks after a tragedy and says he has spent it, we'll worry later on about getting contribution from code Yeah, you say that's kind of the perfect storm. That, yeah, that, I mean, that's not going to happen again. I don't think so. Now, you're right. I suppose in some general sense, the idea that we should be thinking about such examples in a macro way as an alternative to the conventional tort system, that that even though 9-11, BP, or these other programs that aren't even part of the tort system, like gifts from private charities, even though they're all rather unique, one lesson that is learned from these programs, despite the differences in the, in the elements and the variables of each program, one lesson we learn as a matter of public policy in the wake of a mass tragedy, is there a better way 
then you file your lawsuit, I'll file my lawsuit. The tried and true. The tried and true, the devil you know, will see you in court. Or should there be, should we be encouraged to think out of the box? And in the wake of a unique tragedy, whether it's a natural tragedy or a man-driven tragedy, uh, let's think about more creative ways, efficiently, cost-effectively, certainly, to compensate victims. That is worthy public policy discussion, I think. Now, this does not make you a likely candidate for the Trial Lawyers Hall of Fame. No, but I must say, you say the Trial Lawyers Hall of Fame. First, I say two things about the Trial Lawyers. Without the Trial Lawyers' help in 9-11, Leo Boyle, the old uh, ATLA, American Trial Lawyers Mm -hmm. Association, without their support in getting the statute enacted, in setting up the fund, in offering to represent any claimant pro bono, there wouldn't have been a successful 9-11 fund. So it doesn't always follow that the trial lawyers are at odds with what I'm doing. And very often they're not at odds. They can be allies and very important allies. Secondly, very important, do not for a minute suggest that these creative alternatives that come up once every three or four years are going to be the wave of the future. If you think in this country that there is ever going to be a substitute or a replacement of the traditional legal system, tort system in our country, I think that you are uh, vastly overestimating these creative alternatives. But isn't that the fear? I mean, isn't isn't that the fear on the part of many trial lawyers is that they look at this and they say, you know, where you know, the, 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 the camel's nose is in the tent. Once it starts down, once we start to mix my metaphors, to, once we start down this road, you know, where are we going to stop? And, you know, they, 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 undeniably, there's certain benefits and virtues to, to, to this kind of an approach, which is, as you say, the efficiency of it, the quickness of it, the closure. Um, but you know the tort the, the tort law has its uh, you know has its claims the tort law has its claims to you know causation and tailoring the uh, you the know trial lawyers, the, the trial lawyers have nothing to be concerned about the tort system well then why are they concerned they are concerned because they uh, fear as you say the camel's nose under the tent in point of fact in point of fact Every day, in every court, in every city, town, village, hamlet, the tort system, I think, and the trial lawyers work pretty effectively. I'm I'm one, I must say, that this notion that our legal system is broken, well, it may need improvement when it comes to mass catastrophe involving traumatic injuries involving thousands of people. Thank goodness those tragedies are relatively rare. Every day out of the public eye, I think our legal system, the tort system, the lawyers who represent the tort system, do a pretty effective job. But what about, and you bring this up in the book, what about mass product liability, DES, Dalcon Shield, breast implants. I mean, why can't, and then that's a bit, then, then the nose, it's more than just the nose, right? That, that's different. I, I continue to believe that when it comes to mass tragedy, 
uh, the legal system can be more efficient and effective. One of the recent trends that I find very disconcerting, very troublesome, is the trend in our legal system away from aggregative claims, class actions, aggregation, consolidation of thousands of claims in one forum. I'm a big believer in Rule 23, in class actions, uh, properly undertaken, properly overseen by the federal district court. I am a big believer in that. And I think one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, Mm -hmm. that you find this discussion, well, let's come up with more efficient alternatives like the 9-11 fund Mm -hmm. or the BP oil spill fund, is because of the difficulty today in our legal system in aggregating claims. And if you can't get claims consolidated in one legal forum, you run into this terrible delay, uncertainty, cost, inefficiency that helps policymakers think about alternatives to legal aggregation like the 9-11 system or the BP oil spill fund. That's part of it. Well, I think there has been, this is impressionistic, but I think there has been across law generally, even including constitutional law, which is a field that I deal with, against this tendency toward thinking in an aggregative yes. way. And it's a, a sort of a return, I perceive it as being the, 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 the zenith of thinking in aggregative terms was perhaps the Warren Court or, you know, maybe maybe a little later than that, maybe in the 70s or the early 80s, and that there has been uh, a move away from that now toward uh, individual uh, treatment. That's right. And so let me just make sure that I understand what you're saying here. You're saying that if we're going to go in, if the courts are going to go in that direction and the courts are going to make it harder to to try these mass tort cases or to deal with these mass tort cases in an aggregative uh, way, that you're, you're sort of forcing the creation of alternatives. You're sort of inviting, right. you're creating a demand for alternatives. And if you really want to preserve the tried and true, you really want to preserve litigation as the avenue, you need to make it more responsive. You need to make it more responsive to the, the pressures of these mass situations. I, I think that's exactly right. I think that unless the legal system itself, I'm not talking about the horse and buggy or the fellow who falls off a ladder or gets hit by an automobile. I'm talking about the cases you have just uh, mentioned, asbestos, DES, uh, 9-11 victims, uh, BP oil spill, uh, Walmart, um, uh, aggregative litigation. If, If the courts themselves are not going to encourage creative resolution through some sort of aggregation, then you should expect a creative outlet looking elsewhere as an alternative mechanism to prevent the situation that we now have in asbestos, for example, where individuals may have to wait 10 years or more to get an individual trial, which is unacceptable. What do you think the odds are? What do you think the odds are that the courts, and I'm asking you to look in your uh, crystal ball here, but uh, what are the odds that the courts will become, again, more receptive to these kinds of I'm not sure. Now, now, if you look at the Supreme Court, there are a couple of justices. Justice Breyer, 
is the best example, who consistently has said in dissent, you know, you better, we better think about this. If you don't allow Rule 23 aggregation, what is the alternative? What is the alternative? Are you going to ask thousands of individuals to mount their own costly, uncertain, inefficient uh, litigation? Or are we going to be looking for some other mechanisms or other ways to look at um, ways to resolve these claims? Judge Weinstein's written about it, saying, and he's the high watermark with Agent Orange. He's the high watermark where a Rule 23 class was upheld by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. He's been writing constantly, saying, 9-11, BP, those are creative alternatives uh, um, promoted by companies as well as the government. Not just the government, but companies and individuals who are looking for a more creative, efficient way to compensate eligible victims. But even going back to Judge Weinstein or Weinstein and, uh, and Agent Orange, I mean, in, in, in the book, you make it pretty clear that he was bending the rules. Well, he was bending the rules to, to get that case settled and, and to deal with it in the way that he did. I think that's right. And, he, you, and you don't even shy away from the, from, from the uh, phrase social engineering. I think that you could make that argument in a very unique situation involving Vietnam veterans who were in desperate need of help. And he bent the rules, but he bent them in a way where the Second Circuit found a way to find it appropriate, legal, cert denied by the Supreme Court. And it worked. It worked. And in this business, I must say, if it works, it works. Well, that's a big divide, right, is uh, pragmatism. You, you mentioned Justice Breyer, and in the spirit of full disclosure, you're a good friend of Justice oh, Breyer. You worked together uh, for Senator Kennedy uh, and, uh, and worked very closely together. Um, and he, I think it's fair to say, is one of the self-identified pragmatists on the court. But then again, you have somebody, say, like Justice Scalia, somebody with whom you also worked on, in a, in a, on uh, the uh, FISA court in creating the That's FISA right. court when he was in the administration, right. who is uh, less receptive to pragmatic claims and is more focused on principle. He believes that certain things have to be upheld, come hell or high water, and... That's, that's the way it is. One thing you learn over 35 years of these compensation programs, whether they're public money or BP money or private donors like One Fund Boston, is that, that your, your supporters and your critics are, for the most part, overwhelmingly well-intentioned. You mentioned Justice Scalia. I've discussed some of this with Justice Scalia. Absolutely uh, um, wonderful raconteur and uh, believes in his views and uh, is is very um, 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 uh, understanding about the the, the tensions. Um, so I, I think we're in a very. Uh, you may have even said this at the outset, Professor Lee. We're in a very. We're in uncharted seas here when it comes to how we can best compensate victims under what circumstances is it appropriate 
and in, should we encourage alternatives to traditional compensation? Where does traditional compensation work? Where does it fail? What are the defects? How can we deal with the defects, both within the legal system that we've grown up with and been taught in law school, versus these sort of unique alternatives that um, pose a different way? One of the most fascinating things that I haven't got an answer to is this. Why is it when claimants accept money in a private donated fund, like One Fund Boston, Mm -hmm. like Newtown, like Aurora, Colorado, uh, like Virginia Tech, why do individual claimants accept the money? It's a gift, tax-free, but they don't sue. They don't litigate. Mm-hmm. They can. They could take that money and hire a lawyer. Instead, overwhelmingly, they take the money and they walk away. And you're saying you don't have an answer for that? Do, do, does anybody have an answer? I think Rand... Closure? Well, maybe closure. That's anecdotal. Yeah. I think the Rand Institute in California is doing some research into this. Uh, why do people who believe they've been treated fairly in a compensation program... Mm-hmm even if they don't have to sign a release not to sue. Why don't they sue? Why do they take the money and walk away and move on as best they can and not try and get secure additional compensation through litigation? And I think there should be some more research done by this, by Rand and others, to look into the answer to that important question. Well, I think a closure is one possibility, but yet another possibility is one that you talk about quite a bit in your books, and that is the fairness of the process. When people perceive that they've been treated fairly, very often that's all they really need. No. Or at least they perceive that. They perceive it that way. Those twin answers you have just given, closure, due process, fairness, may be the reasons. Now, there may be other reasons. There may be, you know, you're part of a community like Virginia Tech. You don't want to bash the university that is supportive of the whole community. Uh, One Fun Boston. Maybe it's part of a patriotic response. I receive money. I have no business suing the city or the state. I don't know. But more, more, more work should be done in that area. I agree. And Kenneth Feinberg, thank you for speaking legally. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.